I'm Jonathan Mosin and in Mosin at Large, the show that's got the blind community talking, they knew it was inaccessible, but they launched it anyway. Cloudflare potentially puts the jobs of blind people at risk. Is it okay to plan a family when you know your kids are going to be blind, making the most of the new Siri voices and more? Mosin at Large Podcast. You've been able to overcome the myths and misconceptions that are all too common out there, and you have landed a great job. But your security-conscious employer in this era of remote working rolls out a new feature that effectively locks you out of your browser. Now, that is a situation that some blind people could realistically be facing, and the company was warned about it and told how to fix it well over a year ago. To tell us more, I'm joined once again by Matt Campbell. Hi, Matt. It's good to have you back. Hi, Jonathan. Thank you. So the feature that we're talking about today is the remote browser isolation from Cloudflare. And there'll be people at various stages of this journey. So let's go back to the beginning and talk about who Cloudflare is for those who haven't encountered it before. Sure. So Cloudflare is best known as a company providing services for website owners. These services include a content delivery network, which basically makes your website faster, and a web application firewall, which protects your website against various security vulnerabilities. But Cloudflare has lately been expanding into services for corporate networks offering products that compete with what's called a virtual private network or VPN, which many of our listeners may have had to connect to while working from home. And a conventional VPN runs on a machine back at the office. And so you have to connect back to the office, even if nobody is in the office at the moment in order to access your corporate network with your files or your email or whatever else is back there. What Cloudflare has been doing is basically implementing a VPN in the cloud, as it were, really in their 200 plus data centers that they have all over the world. And another thing Cloudflare does that some people might be familiar with is, of course, this DNS that they offer which is actually quite a good product where you can use their DNS and uh, they purport to be very secure and fast. And that does quite a nice job as well. Yes, yes. They came out with the DNS first and then they sort of built on top of that with the VPN. Cloudflare has VPN products both for consumers and companies and their consumer VPN product is called Warp. And it's not really intended to hide or disguise your location like a lot of VPNs are, but it's supposed to make your internet faster, particularly if you are on a low bandwidth or high latency mobile connection. And both Warp and this 1.1.1.1 DNS product are also deployed in their 200 plus data centers all over the world. So it all sounds very robust and secure already, but Why then is there a need for this new thing that is causing some accessibility concerns called remote browser isolation? The idea behind that is that people at work, while they use their browser for internal applications, they also need to be able to browse 
websites that the company doesn't necessarily trust. And while browsers have their own multi-layered security implementations, such as the Chrome sandbox, there are ways of exploiting vulnerabilities to escape the browser's security protections and gain access to the user's machine and whatever sensitive data may be stored there. So the idea behind remote browser isolation is that when you browse to an untrusted website with this VPN turned on, Cloudflare will redirect you to a web application that they run where they basically run a browser in one of their data centers and that remote browser goes to the web page that you wanted to visit and renders the web page, does all of the processing of the HTML and JavaScript and all the other things that make up the web page, renders it and sends back basically graphics of the rendered web page. And then when you do keyboard input or mouse clicks or tap on a touch screen, those input events are sent back to the remote browser. So it's it's kind of like a remote desktop application like TeamViewer or LogMeIn or any of those. It, it's more sophisticated in the way that it sends down the graphics because sending back a video stream is pretty high bandwidth. So they, they do something they call network vector rendering, where they basically send back a sequence of commands to draw a line here, draw a rectangle there, draw, draw some text, possibly. Um, but as far as we're concerned, when it comes to screen reader accessibility, it's still just sending back graphics. And that means that with all those lovely pictures on the screen, a screen reader user is completely locked out. So what do you get? Just a blank screen. What you get, as of a few minutes before I started recording, is first of all, you get a bunch of diagnostic information and and debugging UI that isn't even normally visible on the screen. And then after all of that, you just get one unlabeled graphic. Mm. Who is likely to be affected by this? I mean, what kind of workers might find themselves uh, being required to use this technology from Cloudflare and therefore effectively rendering their browser completely inaccessible when they're logged into this? Well, it's hard to say what you know, which companies are actually going to buy this thing, but I would imagine companies in in highly regulated industries such as banking or healthcare basically anyone who who is really conscious of security and probably smaller companies in these areas will be the first to uh will be the first to sign up just because bigger companies have more uh, more inertia when mm. it comes to adopting new things i would think and and also Cloudflare is not the first company to come out with a product in this area. In fact, Microsoft has its own solution to this problem, and I know there are others as well. And is Microsoft accessible? 
Yes, it is. Okay. The point I'm getting at by asking you that question about the users is that although we've given quite a technical explanation for those who are interested in geeking out on this, this is not a problem that is going to be limited to IT professionals, that you could find this thing rolled out in your workplace because a sysadmin, someone from your IT department or the company that perhaps does your IT for you has decided that this is a really good security step to take. And you could be in any industry where you're using a computer and all of a sudden you could find yourself unable to do your job because your web browser became inaccessible. Exactly. So we're talking a very serious issue. And you learned about the eventual rollout of this product in January of 2020. I want to stress that we're not talking about 2021. We're talking January in 2020. And you contacted Cloudflare then as somebody who is an expert in the area of screen reading and also how to fix some of these issues relating to accessibility. And you reached out and offered your expertise. Can you take us through what happened? How was it that when you contacted them pretty much 15 months before the launch, what we have is an inaccessible product that threatens people's jobs? Yes. So first of all, I should stress that Cloudflare pre-announced the product publicly about 15 months ago when they acquired a company called S2 Systems that developed the the graphics, the, the remote graphics technology that they're using. So they blogged about this acquisition publicly, and I follow the Cloudflare blog pretty regularly because they post about some pretty interesting geeky things sometimes. And when I read this blog post, I immediately realized that this was a potential accessibility disaster in the making. So I don't remember how I, f how I found this, but I had the email address for the CEO and CTO of Cloudflare. So realizing that I was perhaps crossing a line in that, that you don't normally contact such people if they don't know you. I wrote to them and explained that they needed to pay special attention to accessibility in this product. And because they're using the Chromium browser for their cloud-based browser, I went into some details about what they would need to do within Chromium to, uh, to make this product accessible. And the CEO was quick to respond in January of 2020, saying, thanks for reaching out. We have already considered accessibility, and I agree that we don't want to take a step backwards as we work to build a better internet. Which is their mission, isn't it? Or, or vision yes. or something, that, that working yes. to build a better internet is their better sort of internet. slogan. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So I figured they had this under control. So... I backed off and figured they would be in touch. October 2020, they announced that this product was in private beta. So I wrote to them again and asked, can I join your private beta so I can give feedback on accessibility? And they said, yes, we've added you to the waiting list. And then March of this year, a few weeks before the launch, as it turned out, prompted by nothing more than just my wandering mind happening to think of this again. I wrote to them and, and asked, 
uh, hey, can I have access to the private beta? And at that point, they were quick to give me access. And I went and tried the product and imagine my disappointment when I found that it was completely inaccessible. You know, I, I figured based on the amount of time that had passed and the initial response, I figured that maybe they had done like a rudimentary accessibility implementation and we just needed to drill down on the finer points. But I found that there was nothing. And there's more, right? I mean, you, you have had some dialogue, but what seems to have happened here is now they have released and they seem to be saying accessibility can wait. Accessibility, they still yes. say, is coming sometime. Do you have any kind of timeline from them about when accessibility might be here? No idea. Yeah. And so the question then becomes, what are blind people supposed to do if their jobs are threatened because people innocently roll out this technology, not realizing it's inaccessible? Is it possible for an IT person to exempt one individual from this rollout in some way? Presumably, I haven't actually seen that part of the user interface, but when, when I was talking with the, the, the product manager, I don't remember the exact conversation, but yes, he, he indicated that that would be an option. But it seems on the surface pretty callous, doesn't it, that 15 months ago you started this dialogue pointing out the dire consequences for blind people if this thing is rolled out without any kind of accessibility accommodation. And here we are now, the product has been launched and there's just nothing. Yes, there. we can only we can only hope that it that it doesn't get adopted quickly. What would be involved in getting this sorted out? And based on what I've read about this, there wouldn't actually be any need to install anything on the user side. Would there anything special like an extension if the product is actually sensitive to the fact that a screen reader is running? So like I like I explained before, the user accesses this product through their existing browser. They go to a website in their browser and they get redirected to a basically a remote a, a, a client application that is being served by Cloudflare. So what Cloudflare should do is their remote browser, when it sends down the, the graphics to the client, it should also send down all of the accessibility information that Chromium can provide. And I won't get into lots of technical details, but Chromium is architected in such a way that it's quite straightforward to push that information proactively as the web page is being rendered. So the remote browser should send down the accessibility information and then the client application, which is a, a, a JavaScript web application running in the user's local browser, should basically construct a hidden HTML DOM or document object model with the accessibility information that it got from the remote browser. And then the screen reader would be able to render that more or less as if it was a local web page. As a concession to performance, in the normal case where where there isn't a screen reader running, there might be a button that the user has to press called something like turn on accessibility. And ideally they would press that button once and then using a, 
a, a cookie or some such, the the application would remember that they need accessibility to be turned on. What interests me, though, is that based on some of the dialogue you appear to have had with Cloudflare, it's like they don't understand that that provision exists in Chromium browsers and that they were off on a tangent, really, talking about extensions, Braille displays. They don't really seem to understand what a screen reader is. I mean, that's how fundamentally off base they were all that time after you initially contacted them. Yes, the product manager was talking about possibly running a Chromium extension such as ChromeVox in the remote browser and having it send down um, audio. And I had to explain to him that that would work sort of for screen reader users that use text-to-speech, but A, uh, the user would then have two uh, TTS streams going on, one from their local screen reader and one from what would amount to a remote screen reader. And B, it wouldn't work for users that use Braille displays, not to mention other assistive technologies outside of screen reading, because for this is also going to be a problem, I believe, for people with mobility impairments that depend on speech recognition and the like. So the fact that they even thought that that was a viable solution worth pursuing indicates that they have done no real consultation with the community at all. Right. I even tried to steer them in the way that they should go in my very first message. What can be done about it now then? Uh, Clearly, is there some sort of warning that people should be sending? I note, for example, that there is now a web page you can go to about accessibility overlays that people can be referred to. And I'm wondering whether some sort of similar page or blog post or something needs to be set up because not everybody's going to listen to a podcast and an in-depth explanation like this. So that if this stuff starts to be rolled out and a blind person who doesn't have a lot of IT knowledge, but maybe hears the word Cloudflare and this technology being mentioned can point people to and say, you know, hey, Mr. or Ms. IT person, you're going to lock me out unless you find a way to exempt me from this. I haven't published a webpage or a blog post about this yet, but now that you bring this up, I I guess I kind of should. Yeah, I mean, people need to be warned, don't they? Because they could literally find themselves turning on their computer one day and just completely locked out of their job. Yes, if, if if their machine is centrally managed by their IT department, it could ab- absolutely be pushed down to their machine while they're you know, at night sometime. Well, I appreciate you acquainting us with this. I should emphasize that I also reached out to the chief executive of Cloudflare, indicating that we would be running a story on this and that it would be good to speak with somebody about what kind of timelines we were looking at, how it got to this. They have chosen not to respond to that. Cloudflare, of course, is absolutely entitled to get back to me and and exercise a right of reply if they want. But I appreciate you coming on and explaining this, Matt, because it's potentially a really serious issue for those affected. Yes, thank you for helping me get the word out. Emily, let's make a promo for a podcast. Oh, that's a good idea, but what should we put in it? Our podcast is about... First and foremost, we cover all things at the Ohio School for the Blind. Like athletics. The only street to have is the guy on the field. And 
field trips before COVID. I gotta strike my first uh, play. We are playing Angry Birds. Messages from the administration. I think we're gonna have an awesome year. And interviews from our alumni. I was really excited to go to OSSB for two reasons. Special class activities. No, don't, don't tell me my name is too easy, sir, if you can't tell me the contraction. And meeting new staff and students. Wait, you're the librarian? Yeah. You look different, okay. This is all cool, but how do we make this a promo? We just did. So tune in to hear all that is happening at the Ohio State School for the Blind. In sunny Australia, Tristan Clare writes, First, I can't agree with you more regarding the importance of blind mentors. I can think of one particular instance where the absence of older blind people might have led to a different outcome for me and my brother. When I was a baby, I was diagnosed with LCA. It took a while for the diagnosis. The first eye specialist who took a look at me said, She's fine, just a bit of nystigmus. She'll probably never play tennis, that's all. Well, he wasn't wrong. I never did play tennis. I'm sure you make a racket anyway, Tristan. When the actual diagnosis came, my parents were told that I was totally blind. It was genetic, and they should seriously think about not having any more kids. My mum was already pregnant with my brother, so the gates couldn't be shut on that one. He also turned out to have the same condition. Later, it was found that I had some residual vision, but not, fortunately, before I was taught Braille, with a lowercase b. But I digress. My main point is that doctors in the late 70s had no problem with bandying around phrases like they'll never have a normal life, and you'd be better off not having any more children. My parents had very little experience with blindness, so if they'd only had information that was so medicalized and pessimistic, then I'm not sure how we would have turned out. I guess they would have done their own research, since they're sensible people. But remember, this was years before the internet and access to information about disabilities or anything else was a lot harder to come by. Fortunately for all of us, they were put in touch with an independent, successful blind woman who, apart from being a parent herself and a respected academic, also had a paid position answering the questions of nervous new parents. I can't stress enough how invaluable this lady was to my parents. I only have hazy memories of a nice lady who brought fun, noisy toys to our house every Thursday but her presence in the first couple of years of our lives made all the difference to my parents. Her very existence as an independent, employed, blind woman was evidence against the gloomy predictions of everyone else in the field. Fortunately, no one undid this good work by saying that she was a, quote, super blind person, unquote, a term I utterly loathe and detest. I haven't heard it from a lot of sighted professionals out here. It seems to be more popular with fellow blind people. The term is most often attached to blind people who are considered to be, and I quote, getting above themselves. It completely devalues whatever hard work and struggle that person might have had to go through to achieve whatever it is that the other person finds so objectionable, be it employment, living independently, 
earning a scholarship or founding your own YouTube channel. One of the side benefits of being educated in a blind school is that you come into contact with kids from all walks of life. Most primary school kids who are mainstreamed will go to the school of their local area. Of course, there are some schools that are incredibly diverse, but the majority are people from largely the same ethnicity and socio-economic background. Certainly the school I was mainstreamed into was very white and middle class. But before then, I attended the blind school and met kids from everywhere. Many were middle class and came from traditional nuclear families like mine. Some were rich enough to live in mansions and have nannies. Others came from dysfunctional home settings or poverty. Unlike a lot of kids my age, I knew kids who had died by the time I was seven. I lost touch with a lot of people when I left the blind school, but thanks to social media, I've been able to reconnect with people I thought I'd lost forever. I know that the hand you're dealt can have an influence on the outcomes of your life, but I also know people who have clawed their way out of incredibly bad home lives and been able to break the cycle of poverty or abuse, as well as people who were given all the opportunities and resources in the world but weren't able to make use of those opportunities. Just as it is incredibly judgmental to write off blind people who are unemployed as lazy or underachieving, it is equally dismissive to devalue the achievements of blind people who have done well in life. It creates unnecessary divisions within our community, and for people whose only human contact is the blind community, may discourage them from seeking advancement for fear that they will be ostracized from the people they think of as family. I have heard of this phenomenon within other marginalized groups, and I think it's really sad that we can't pool our knowledge and experiences to help each other. Thanks for the thoughtful email, Tristan, as so many of your emails are. I agree with you, envy is a terribly destructive emotion. There is a big difference between ambition and envy. I had a blind guy come up to me not so long ago, and he said, I want your job. And I said, good on you. I hope you get it sometime, or at least a similar one. That's fine. If you can see someone with something that you want, a lifestyle that you want or whatever, and you aim for it, then go for it. Because success isn't a zero-sum game, and when you despise other people's achievements or you can't celebrate for them, it just shows the individual who feels that way is a mean-spirited individual, and they probably need to have a good think about the way that they look at the world, because they're probably pretty sad and don't have many friends, I would think. You raise an interesting subject that I have been meaning to bring up, so I'll bring it up now, since we're talking about it. The attitude that is still very prevalent in society about producing disabled children, or specifically in this instance, producing blind children. Now, my first wife, Amanda, my children's mum, is a wonderful champion of blind people. And she now does an outstanding job teaching blind kids in New Zealand. And I think the blind kids that she teaches are just so incredibly fortunate to have her. When I was heavily involved in the consumer movement here in New Zealand, we were invited to a meeting somewhere where they had a genetic counsellor talking. And there were a lot of people with RP, retinitis pigmentosa, and similar conditions. And so the genetic counsellor started talking about X-linked and 
things like that, conditions, and saying, and she was using language like, in such and such a situation, you have a 50% risk of having a blind child. And she kept using this term risk whenever she talked about having a blind child. And I was just so proud of Amanda when she got up and she interrupted this woman in the middle of her presentation. And she said, as a sighted person who was married to a blind man, I just want to tell you how offensive I find your language to be. Why don't you talk about a 50% chance of having a blind child? Why are you talking about a 50% risk? Would you say that we have a 50% risk of having a boy or a 50% risk of having a girl? You using language like this to vulnerable people who are thinking about their reproductive futures is blatantly ableist and irresponsible. And boy, I was never prouder of her than that day. That was, well, perhaps when she gave birth to our kids. I mean, it's hard to beat that. But that was an astoundingly brave thing to do. She may well have changed the lives of many people by making that statement. First, because there was somebody cited getting up in that group of people and telling them that blindness didn't have to be a tragedy. And second, I hope that from that day to this, assuming she's still genetic counseling, she has never used the word risk like that again. But, you know, we're not squeaky clean on this either. There's another aspect of this. And that is the attitude that some blind people have to knowingly bringing other blind children into the world. Now, this came up for me because I was interviewed on a show in Australia, actually. I think it was Stephen Jolly who interviewed me. And I made a passing comment that I thought nothing of. I said something about, yeah, he was asking me, what's the condition that causes your blindness? And I was explaining that it was an X-linked thing. Norrie's disease is what it's called, for those interested. And I was explaining that it was an X-linked thing, which meant that my children had no greater chance of being blind than any others, but that my daughters had a 50% chance of having blind sons. And I made the comment that that means that I might have blind grandchildren, which I'm really excited about. Now, somebody actually posted a comment on my blog where I posted a link to this interview. This is some years ago now, really taking me to task for being excited about the idea of having blind grandchildren. And this was such a foreign concept to me because I just don't see blindness as a death sentence or something to be avoided or anything like that. Would I, at the beginning of my life, choose to be sighted? Yes, I would. If I was starting from day zero, I would, of course. But do I wish I'd never been born because I was blind? Of course I don't. I've had a great life, all in all. And I know that if I have blind grandsons, they will have a great life. And the only thing that I fear, actually, about having blind grandsons is that I believe I would have a very special bond with them. I can imagine this little blind kid being into audio and playing with their grandfather in the studio and stuff like that. And I would have to be careful if I had both blind grandchildren and sighted grandchildren that I made sure I was treating them equally because I think there would be an amazing bond, especially when you're a grandparent, which I'm looking forward to being, you can sort of spoil the kids rotten and give them back 
grandparents have earned that right to be, you know, a little bit less strict and have adventures with their grandkids and be the ones that the grandkids come to when they think mum and dad are being unreasonable, you know. And of course, then the mum and dad say, you would never have allowed us to do this. You're much less strict with my kids than you were with me. And on. It's, it's like the cycle of life. And I would love to be the grandfather of a blind child. Having said that, I absolutely respect my own children's own reproductive choices and they can do what they want. If they make a decision that they would rather avoid that, then that's entirely their decision. So there's no pressure there. I respect it. But I would be pretty buzzed about having blind grandchildren. And my goodness, you can go into the Mosin.org blog archives and find this thing. I think it was called Why I'm Excited About Having Blind Grandchildren. And some of the people posting on there were so vitriolic. It really took me back. It really did that people feel that way about blindness and how irresponsible they think it is to knowingly bring blind children into the world or to be excited about it. Of course we face discrimination, but so do many racial minorities. So do people for a variety of reasons. Of course, society makes decisions that disable us. That's why, as I've said here on the podcast before, here in New Zealand, we talk about disabled people because it is society, by virtue of its choices, that chooses to disable us. But we continue to make progress on that front. We're admitting defeat if we say, because society chooses to disable us, we just won't reproduce anymore. Imagine the rightful backlash if that was said about a racial minority. Oh, there's just too much prejudice, so we we, we should just stop reproducing. The reason why I've been thinking about this lately is because of an article I read a few months ago, and I was so appalled by this article, I filed it away, thinking, I wonder what Mosin at large listeners think of this. Now, there are some cultural differences, but I still think sometimes there are things that transcend culture that there are universal human rights, which in my view are not negotiable. And this article oversteps the boundary for me. It comes from Gawahati, which is in the state of Assam in India. And I know we do have some Indian listeners, so they may be able to give us some context on this, but it horrified me. It says members of the world's largest blind family, which lives in Assam's Nagawan district, are visually challenged due to a hereditary disorder health experts have found. The family has 18 blind members running across four generations. There are only four such families in the world that suffer from this rare form of blindness caused by a mutation of the GJA8 gene, doctors who have been investigating the case said. The other three families with the same disorder were discovered by University of Sydney Genetic Laboratory. Now that the cause has been identified, every pregnancy should be tested for the presence of the gene. If found, they will have to go for termination as per law. The selection of unborn members will gradually reduce the burden, and after a few decades, the defect will disappear principal coordinator of the project and assistant professor of pathology, Dr. Gayatri Gagoy, said. 
The doctor added that family planning and counselling for antenatal testing of the pregnant is a must in order to get rid of the gene. The urgent need is to cover the cost of antenatal genetic testing via government schemes or similar assistance from government agencies, she informed. Dr. Gagoy's team had a series of discussions with local officials as to how to cover the expenditure of genetic testing, as it would cost around 10,000 rupees each time. However, the biggest predicament is that the existing facilities cannot be used for these kinds of rare diseases since it is not included in the government's guidelines. We have achieved most of our scientific objectives, but the immediate need is to cover the cost of antenatal genetic testing as only that will ensure that the coming generations get to lead normal lives, she said. Very late, while one pregnancy was found normal, another had to be terminated because of the presence of the gene. Elaborating on how her project started, the doctor said until February 2018, nobody recognised the unique case of the family who had earned their livelihood by begging. So there you have it, really. Eugenics. Alive and well. It absolutely sickened me when I read this. Let's be clear, I'm not getting into the issue of somebody making a choice. What I'm getting into the issue of is apparently a law. The article specifically says that the law requires this. Blindness doesn't stop them from being anything they want to be. What stops them from being anything they want to be is lack of opportunity, lack of education, lack of resources. But these kids who just happen to be blind, there's a law somewhere that says that they're not allowed to be brought to term. (sighs) What can you say? Brian Gaff says, when I was young, I was sighted, though not as sighted as my parents thought, of course. One has to remember, this was 1950, and up until 1965, when my schooling ended, I still had some partial sight, but had no knowledge of what genetics were, let alone the concept of recessive genes. I would say society was different then also. Nobody really thought much about the decision not to have children, as they had not been created yet. It's hard to see if that might be morally wrong. So I guess I went along in life, probably broadcasting subconsciously to members of the opposite sex that I was not that interested in having kids for whatever reason. Of course, nowadays, with the different mindset and more enlightenment, my decision might be very different. But there you are. So your question is, I think, dependent on the culture at the time. And who are we to judge the decisions made by people who have less knowledge and indeed probably more expectations for a disabled child than they did after the war. In effect, the UK, remember, food rationing only stopped when I was three years old. I suspect that this scenario may well be age-related, as mine is, when you get comments. I finally had genetic counselling in 1967. The obvious bias to not having disabled children by those doctors probably made my mind up as these were experts, right? Exactly, Brian. This is really a key point for me, that some of these genetic counsellors, at least in the past, 
have been portraying having blind children as some sort of risk that the child will have some sort of suboptimal life, an inferior life. And to me, that's just not factually the case. What's on your mind? Send an email with a recording of your voice or just write it down. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. Or phone our listener line. The number in the United States is 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-60-66736. Some comments on those new Siri voices in iOS 14.5. Pam Quinn writes, Hi, Jonathan. I got in on the Clubhouse sneak peek of the new Siri voices. Yeah, we do these things for Mosin at Large listeners. Make sure you are following the Mushroom FM Club on Clubhouse for those. She says, I had wondered why Voice Dream didn't have African-American voices available, as I've read books using it in which they would have been appropriate. What I'm wondering is, Will these voices be available to use on VoiceDream? I'm thinking that they might not be, since they probably won't be listed among the iOS voices. Well, let's take a look, we'll tell Siri. Open VoiceDream. Here we are using VoiceDream Reader. I'm still using the Siri Voice 3 that was introduced in the 14.5 beta. And I know that by performing a four-finger single tap towards the bottom of the screen, I will get to the last item, which should be settings. Toolbar. Settings. Button. We'll double tap. Settings. Heading. And flick right. Close. Button. Cloud sync. Button. Content sources. Button. Manage my voices. Button. All right, and we'll double tap that thing. Manage my voices. Heading. And flick right. Close. Button. English. Heading iOS Aaron, button. iOS Alex, button. iOS Arthur, button. iOS Ava, button. iOS Ava, enhanced, button. iOS Catherine, button. Preferred, iOS Daniel, button. iOS Fred, button. iOS Gordon, button. iOS Gordon, enhanced, button. iOS Karen, button. iOS Karen, enhanced, button. iOS Martha, button. iOS Moyer, button. iOS Nikki, button. iOS Rishi, button iOS Samantha, button, iOS Tessa, button, Graham. And so we've moved past the iOS voices and it appears that they are not available in Voice Dream Reader at the moment. Geeks of the world rejoice because we have a really interesting email here from Zachary who says, Hey Jonathan, just wanted to give you and your listeners a quick tip on using Speak Screen with the Siri voices in iOS. I was not aware of this until recently. However, if you enable Speak Screen and select one of the voices used by Siri, the voice used will be the neural network version that is in the assistant itself. This is different to the version used by VoiceOver, as I have suspicion that there are technical limitations with the more advanced neural network version from working properly. I'm not sure if this was changed in 14.5, as one of my friends tried it yesterday and it was the more common concatenated version of the voice. However, in 14.4, it does work correctly. This is great because the new Siri voices that are rolling out have significant improvements over the older versions and could be more enjoyable 
if you wanted to sit back and read a news article, for example. You may want to do a demo of this, as it can be a little tricky to get Speak Screen working if VoiceOver is active. To invoke it properly, you need to swipe down with two fingers from the status bar. If you swipe down from, say, the center of the screen, VoiceOver will perform a read-all instead. One more great thing about Speak Screen is it will still work even if you go to another app or lock your device. So if you're reading a long article, you don't need to worry about touching the screen and losing your place. Oh, and it's signed Zach B. That sounds like a good radio name. It's Mushroom FM, Zach B. Thank you, Zach. Now this is, again, news we can use. I use the Speak Screen feature a lot. So I want to talk about this, but also this is quite an interesting discovery, and I have confirmed that it works. The difference between using the Siri voices with Speak Screen and using the Siri voices with VoiceOver is quite pronounced. And I suspect one of the issues could be latency, that with that neural engine, it's probably a little less responsive to flicks and swipes. I'm thinking, but I don't know for sure. So it's just speculation on my part. So let's talk about how we set this up. And many years ago, I did a very popular audio demo on the speak screen feature and why as a blind person, even if you use voiceover, you might also want to configure speak screen. But that was many years ago. So let's revisit the whole thing from scratch in case you've not heard of the speak screen feature or you thought that maybe it doesn't apply to you. So we'll go there now. Open accessibility settings. Here are the settings for accessibility. Settings. I'll flick right. Accessibility. Accessibility feed. Vision. Heading. VoiceOver. Zoom. All. Magnifier. Display and text. Motion. Button. Spoken content. Button. That's the one we want. Spoken content. I'll double tap. Settings. Speak selection. Off. Flick right. A speak button will appear when you select text. Speak screen. On. Now, if speak screen is not on on your phone, to do what we're about to do, you will need to double tap to enable speak screen. I'll flick right. Swipe down with two fingers from the top of the screen to hear the content of the screen. There's another way of invoking speak screen as well, and we'll cover that soon. Speech controller. Off. Button. Highlight content. Off. Button. Highlight content as it is spoken. Type in feedback. Button. Voices. Button. This is also what we want to look at. What voice do you want when you use the speak screen function? But before we go and choose the voice, let's just take care of the speaking rate. So I'll flick right. Speaking rate. Heading. Speaking rate. 67%. I'm going adjustable. to slow that down just a little for the sake of this demo. Pronunciation. Speaking rate. 57%. Adjustable. Speaking rate. 47%. Mm, adjustable. All right. That's quite sluggish, actually. Uh, but I'm just trying to get some speaking feedback rate, from it. Sixty-seven. Okay, it's not it's not speaking as I scroll through that slider, but I've got it to fifty-seven, which I think should be okay. Pronunciations button, and you can set pronunciations here as well. Pronunciation. And that's the end of that screen. So let's go back. Speaking speaking rate heading voices button, and double tap voices to change the voice used by VoiceOver. Go to accessibility settings greater than voiceover, greater than speech, greater than voice. That's a very prudent caveat to have at this point, because what we're doing here is only changing the voice 
for these built-in functions that are not related to voiceover, which is a good thing because if you only want to use Speak Screen when you have a long article read to you, maybe in the same way that you've become used to using the immersive reader feature in Microsoft Edge and those really amazing voices that they have introduced for reading long text, then you can have a separate Speak Screen voice from your usual voiceover voice. With voiceover, it may be more important to you to have something that's really responsive, that's cranked all the way up so you can be productive. But with this, you might want to be really read to as if a human were reading to you. I'll flick right. English. Siri Voice 3 United States. Button. And that's what I've selected at the moment. So this is the same voice, but it's the neural engine version of this voice. Siri Voice 3 from the United States. So very soon, we're going to compare the two versions of this voice. I'll flick to the right. Arabic. And now we can go on and choose voices for other languages. But I'm set up now. I have Speak Screen set up the way I want. Now I'm going to zap on over to Safari. Safari. And it only just so happens that I have a Mosin at Large blog post from the Mosin.org site available. And I'm going to go to the top of the screen. Format options. There's the format options. And I'm going to invoke the reader mode by flicking down. Shell reader view. And double tap. Selected. Now, what I'm going to do is let you hear this blog post. First, with voiceover. Address. Reload. This weekend on Mosin. So let's start this reading with voiceover. This weekend on Mosin at large. Siri gets new voices. Being a voice control efficiency ninja. Edit inefficiently with iOS and more. Heading level one. Article. Landmark. Posted by Jonathan Mosen. 02 slash 04 slash 2021. Kia or Mosen at largers. I'm getting up bright and early to do the show for you this weekend because daylight saving is ending in New Zealand on Sunday. With the US having gone one hour forward. And now us going one hour back. That means the show starts at 6 a.m. 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning I tell you. Never mind. If I don't wake up on time, I have substitute hosts standing by. If you've been missing our usual healthy dose of talking Apple things lately, we're making up for it this weekend. All right, I'm going to stop it at that point. Now, let's go back to the top of the screen. Select it. What I'm going to do now is place my finger at the very top of the phone. It can be quite hard to do on phones with a notch because the status bar is quite tiny. 91% battery power, not charging. Now I'm on the status bar. And what I'm going to do is perform a two-finger flick down. Now, as Zach quite rightly said, if you perform this gesture when you're on the center of the screen, then it will invoke a voiceover say all or read all. If you do it on the status bar and you've gone into those accessibility options like we just did and enabled speak screen, this will invoke the speak screen function. And as Zach says... You can navigate away from the application. You can even turn your phone off if you're worried about, say, putting it in your pocket and um, losing your place. But listen to the difference. This is the same voice. The speed might not be exactly the same, but the voice is the same, except that VoiceOver is using the concatenated version and Speak Screen has access to the new neural engine version of the same voice. Spot that difference. This weekend, address Mosin. Siri gets new voices being a voice control efficiency ninja, editing efficiently with iOS and more posted by Jonathan Mosen February 4th, 2021, February 4th, 2021.
Kia Ormos and the Largers, I'm getting up bright and early to do the show for you this weekend because daylight saving is ending in New Zealand on Sunday. With the U.S. having all an hour forward and now us going one hour back, that means the show starts at 6 a.m. 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning, I tell you. Never mind if I don't wake up on time. I have substitute hosts standing by. If you've been missing our usual healthy dose of talking Apple things lately, we are making up for it this weekend. In a big surprise, iOS 14.5 is adding quite a substantial new feature. I just performed a two-finger double tap, so the magic tap to stop that, and if I perform a two-finger double tap again... Feature. Two brand new Siri voices. We'll give them a good listen. If you have the... And I'm doing that again, so you can pick up from exactly where you left off. Now, I'm tempted to show you a, a few other examples with different voices, but you can play with this yourself now that you know how it's done. There is an appreciable difference in the audio quality between the concatenated version and the neural engine version. It really is very noticeable. Just a couple of things about speak screen. Speak screen can also be invoked by using the Siri command speak screen. So I can say speak screen. Already because you're running a 14.5 beta. What do you think of them? Are you changing your Siri voices to one of the new ones? Will you use any of them with voiceover? We also have an incredibly handy, if not fitly, tip to improve efficiency with Apple's voice control feature by simplifying the commands to give for controlling voiceover. A listener has asked me to discuss... All right, that's really very good, isn't it? That, that is quite a difference. So you can use the speak screen command with Siri to speak the screen. And where this can be handy is that in certain apps, it can be very difficult to find the status bar or the status bar has been obscured. So just by saying to Siri, speak screen, you are up and running. Zach did mention that you can lock the screen. And that is certainly the case if you're reading a long article from the web. You can unlock the screen when the article is over. It also works really well in Apple Books. So if you buy from Apple Books, I always, when I'm reading with it, use the speak screen function. One of the cool things about this is that you can still get your notifications. It's like reading an audiobook on Audible. If you don't put yourself in Do Not Disturb mode, then VoiceOver can speak the notifications to you and the book will keep reading like an audiobook using the speak screen function. Speak screen in Apple Books does automatically pan the pages for you and keep reading. So you can lock your screen and read it like an audiobook from the beginning to the end. The one slight annoyance that I have found is that VoiceOver has started to speak the page number every time the page turns, which I wish I could disable. But other than that, Speak Screen with Apple Books is a great experience, and it's one of the reasons why I choose Apple Books over Kindle. Because if you read a Kindle book with Speak Screen, unfortunately you can't lock your screen. It will stop speaking at the end of the page if you lock your screen. So that's one downside of using Kindle with speak screen at the moment. So thank you, Zach, for bringing this to our attention. This is a really super duper trick. And I think it'll encourage me to investigate some of these other voices, the high quality neural engine versions for reading books for pleasure. And while we're talking about iOS 14.5, a brief mention of the fact that there is now an items tab in the Find My app and a third party tag system is already using this. So they've beaten Apple to the punch. Some are speculating that this is deliberate, that we are going to see the Apple tags quite soon. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you will know about Apple tags because goodness only knows we've talked about them enough as we've anticipated every Apple event might actually announce them, but we don't see them yet. Apple tags are the alternative to tile 
and they should be quite accurate, especially with some of the newer iPhones and the wideband chip that they have there to help locate things. So now in 14.5, you will find the items tab and some earbuds are there as well. You can add items that are compatible with this new MFI standard. And Apple has released a kit that allows manufacturers to integrate this into their devices. And so hopefully you will be able to locate more and more of your stuff in this tab over time. And who knows, one day, one sweet fine day, we may actually get the Apple AirTags and you'll be able to use those in this tab as well. Some are speculating that there's method in the madness and that the reason why Apple has released this third party support first is to sort of fend off any antitrust concerns. So I suppose in theory, it might be possible for Tile itself to integrate this standard and you'll be able to find your tiles in here. Whether Tile would see that as a good strategic business move or not, I guess time will tell. Jonathan Mosen, Mosen at Large Podcast. This is Abby Taylor in Sheridan, Wyoming. This time, I'd like to comment on the issue of Braille with a capital B. I agree that Braille should be capitalized, not only because it is named after the person who created it, but also because, to me, Braille is a language, like English, Spanish, German, or French. All those are capitalized, so why not capitalize Braille? Now, here's another way of looking at this BANA edict that Braille should not be capitalized unless you are mentioning the name of Lewis Braille. I listen to a podcast each week called Grammar Girl. And you should be able to find this on your favorite podcast app of choice. It's about grammar and writing and other, other things related to writing. And being an author, that's why I like it. Um... And during this podcast, she will every so often mention some style guides, like the Chicago Manual of Style is one of them, and I can't think of the other one that she talks about. But she'll say, the Chicago Manual of Style recommends that you write it this way. The other Manual of Style, whatever it is called, will recommend that you write it this way. So to me, Banna's saying that Braille should not be capitalized is nothing more than a recommendation. As far as I know, there aren't going to be policemen coming after you with billy clubs, nightsticks, tasers, and other harmful paraphernalia just because you capitalized the word braille. So, if you prefer not to capitalize Braille or to capitalize Braille, that should be your choice. Now, if you're writing for a publication that says, well, you must follow a certain style guide, and I don't know if blindness publications insist that people follow the Braille Authority of North, North America's guidelines, but if they do, then yes, then you would have to follow their guidelines if you want to be published. Otherwise, do what you feel is right, and what's comfortable for you. Thank you, Abby. I will always welcome anyone into the Braille with an uppercase B club, so good to have you a member of that. I would respectfully disagree with you about Braille being a language. To me, Braille is a code 
that can represent various languages. So you have English Braille, you have French Braille, Spanish Braille, etc. And the same grammatical, spelling, linguistic rules apply to Braille because it's simply a way of accessibly getting those languages onto a piece of paper or more commonly these days, Braille display. So I wouldn't call it a language, I'd call it a code, but Morse is a code as well. So whichever way you look at it, Braille should be capitalised. Good on you, Abby. Good on you. If you're going to NFB or ACB this year, move a resolution. You say you want a resolution. And I have found out, actually, as a result of a conversation on Clubhouse the other day, that capitalizing Braille is in the NFB's style guide. So if you read publications and media releases from the NFB, then Braille, as in the code Braille, is with a capital B. And I applaud them, of course, for that. It's the respectful, correct thing to do. And I do wonder whether then, somewhere in the annals of history, there is a resolution that promotes Braille with an uppercase B already on the books of NFB. But regardless, I think it's time that there was another one, if one already exists, because NFB does it in their style guide. They clearly support Braille with an uppercase B. I do not know if ACB has a position on this, but if they don't, I hope they will adopt one. I really do hope they will adopt one. I think if the consumer organizations around the world take their Braille back and say, a small group of people have overstepped the mark with this, then maybe we can get Braille its capital back universally. Hello, Jonathan. It's Bryant here. I wanted to weigh in on the tape recorder conversation. I've had a few tape recorders throughout my life, but I only remember one because I was too little to remember the others. The tape recorder I do remember was an APH recorder. I'm not sure what the model was, but it was one of those bigger ones with a handle on it you could carry around. Um, it wasn't very, I wouldn't say it was really very portable because it was, it was big, but that recorder actually lasted me a long time. As a matter of fact, it broke uh, only about one or two years ago. Actually, I, I remember when I was still using it, the door came off of it, the door where, uh, where the tape goes. And so the tape and the heads were actually exposed. And so I could easily put my finger in there and try and stop the heads from moving. I did that sometimes. The recordings I made on it were of me and my uncle. He was at my house and I remember we were playing around with, uh, with balloons and we would pop them and see how they sounded in fast and slow uh, motion on that on that uh, tape recorder. I do have tapes of when I was little, but they were recorded on a different tape recorder, so not that not that one, because uh, my mom did most of those recordings and then just gave me the tape. In fact, uh, I remember another thing I remember about this recorder is it came with a instructions tape. Um, I think the tape had two sides on it. I think both sides had had uh, the recording, but I remember it because the tape was, I think, had the same voice as 
the uh, voice on like Math Flash and stuff like that. I think the same guy did the recording for the instructions. And I did have, I think they called it the cassette book machine. But of course, that didn't have recording capabilities. Ben says, any recommendations as an alternative to Microsoft Word for grammar and spell checker? Please advise. Of course, it has to be compatible with JAWS in the process of cleaning up the transcriptions of my episodes. Hmm. I haven't looked for an alternative to the spelling and grammar checker in Microsoft Word, although I do wonder whether the reason why you're asking me this is because, like me, you feel like the efficiency, not so much the accessibility, but the efficiency of Microsoft Word's spell checker and grammar checker has been going downhill steadily for a few years now. And this really does frustrate me about Microsoft's accessibility efforts. It's like they don't seem to have any blind people on the UI side who care about efficiency. So there's a lot of standardization now. The screen reader experience that you get in Word is incredibly consistent, regardless of which screen reader you use, and to some degree, even the platform that you're using. The only trouble is, JAWS had all the other products beat in terms of efficiency, and now it feels like Microsoft is making JAWS conform to the also-rans, to the lesser screen readers. And it's really frustrating to me. So I understand why you might be looking, but I haven't actually gone as far as to look I believe that Grammarly is notoriously inaccessible. So if anybody has found a spell checker that is more efficient to use than the current JAWS Microsoft Word experience, or not really to pick on JAWS because it's any screen reader with Microsoft Word, then please let us know. For all things Mosin at large, check out the website where you can listen to episodes online, subscribe using your favorite podcast app, and contact the show. Just point your browser to podcast.mosen.org. That's podcast.mosen.org. Alan Bartlett writes, Hello, Jonathan. I am blind and I am from Melbourne, Australia. Talking about derogatory use of the word blind, well, this one is a clanger. Again, from your friends at RNZ. I came upon this RNZ podcast directly after listening to the Mosin podcast. I think the content I heard clearly confirms the importance of the issue you raised during your broadcast about derogatory uses of the word blind, especially in a language-driven world. It is from Standing Room Only, stories of cerebral palsy told in Squeaky Wheel. The podcast is Sunday the 4th of April 2021, at 3.15. From funny to heartbreaking, it says, the stories of people with cerebral palsy and those who advocate for them are told in a new verbatim play called Squeaky Wheel. During the podcast, Kat Thomas says, looking back now, I have a primary aged child. I can see really clearly what that past was. But when I was in it, you're just blind. And even though I'm in the primary school now, I'm still blind with the education system. This is even more poignant as Kat is a writer and has a daughter with CP. Clearly, education is needed at all levels of society, including those in the disability community. I am sure people don't necessarily mean to be derogatory, but if it feels like that to a group of people, then we need to call it out. 
I think raising a complaint with RNZ might sound pedantic to some. But if somebody has behavior that offends you, do you say, do it again, or stop it, we don't like it? With the way language is constantly evolving, there is a great opportunity to change what we don't like. And it's signed yours in blindness, Alan Bartlett. Like your style, Alan, and I'm really sorry that you had to read yet another example from New Zealand of this atrocious use of the word blind or misuse of the word blind. I think it speaks a lot to the work we have to do in this country. Hi, Jonathan. Concerning the use of the word blind, I would have to agree with you that the way the New Zealand's minister used the word blind is not acceptable because blind, it was not figurative there in any way. It was a pure substitute for the word ignorant, unaware. And the same applies to the expression blind drunk. Alcohol can cause visual distortions, but it doesn't cause you total lack of sight. The only way I can interpret the expression blind drunk is to mean that somebody is so drunk that he stumbles around like a blind man. And that implies all blind people stumble around. So it's an inappropriate expression. But now let's analyze the term double-blind experiment that I referred to in an earlier contribution on my participation in the vaccine trial. In a double-blind experiment, nobody can, left quote, see, white quote, whether or not the participant belongs to the group that gets the real vaccine in this case, or the placebo. So that is figurative lack of sight. Of course, it also means that literally nobody can see whether or not they administer the real medication or the placebo, right? If the nurse has a bottle, uh, he or she cannot see if that bottle contains real vaccine or placebo. But in the end, it is rather about nobody knows whether or not the participant gets the real thing or the placebo. So yes, double blind is a figurative expression here And yeah, you could say, if you want to see it that way, that it refers to ignorance. And then I concluded we just view this differently, or maybe not. The thing is, I remember that when I bought one of your great Mosin Consultancy books, I saw the name of your firm on the credit card statement, and the name of your firm is Out of Sight Limited. To call the apparent hidden financial vehicle of a totally blind guy earning his money on blindness stuff out of sight limited, it's really funny and I really appreciate it. Nevertheless, if you mind figurative uses of the word blind and then use the word sight in this manner, I fail to see the consistency. Uh, Well, I'm scratching my head genuinely flummoxed by that, Tim. I have no idea why you would see any inconsistency there because... If you have a company as a blind person called Out of Sight, it's actually extremely consistent with what I've been saying. I am saying with pride, I am out of sight, literally out of sight. I don't have any sight. I'm out of sight. I'm blind. So I'm using that term in its literal sense. It's 100% consistent with all that I've been saying about use of the word blind. Thank you, Jonathan, says Marissa. I wanted to share my story. 
I am in my 30s. I was born 23 weeks premature. I have retinopathy of prematurity. I have a developmental delay. I thank you for bringing up the point about the word blind should not be associated with, in this case, ignorance. It's extremely sad that people cannot come up with other terms for their ignorance. I agree with you 100% on everything you mentioned in episode 110. It is the same thing as people saying that is retarded, implying stupid. I appreciate all the work you have done for the blindness community. I look forward to meeting you one day in person. It would be an honor and pleasure. Thank you, Marissa. It would be good to meet you too. Andrew Tuddy says, I'm writing to you this morning from beautiful Kitchener, Ontario, Canada, where spring is springing and the clocks have been set to daylight savings time once again to the powers that be. Please don't fiddle with them any more as my circadian rhythm has adjusted and I am sick and tired of having to reset them again and again. I have to say, Andrew, I can't blame my circadian rhythm issues on daylight saving, to be fair. With a non-24, getting out of sync is an occupational hazard. Andrew continues, your stance on the use of the word blind has made me rethink the use of this word in everyday speech. I do think that you are right that the use of this word to convey images of unknowing, ignorance, and other negative inferences is problematic and does much to harm and further impart negative stereotypes of what being blind really means. Your suggestion to replace the word contextually within the sentence the minister and the media personalities used in that broadcast really highlights just how offensive their use of the word is. It took me many years to use the word to describe myself, because until the last four or five years, I was not totally blind. Like the use of the white cane, I was reticent to embrace it as part of my being blind. My usable vision is now to the point where some light perception is about all my peepers can manage. So the word is mine now, and I will guard it jealously and point out when it is used in any negative context. In many respects, becoming blind has allowed me to see the world very differently. It made me confront not only my own situation, but afforded me the opportunity to volunteer my time and skills to advocate for a more inclusive, diverse, accessible and caring community for all our citizenry. That was a very positive outcome for me. Keep up the fantastic work you do. Your reach is far and wide, and your impact is even greater. That's very kind. Thank you, Andrew, for your contribution. Jesse Dravathan is writing in and says, Firstly, thank you for all the great content you put out on the Mosin at Large podcasts and your other ventures, both past and present. I always look forward to when the new episode of the Mosin at Large appears in my podcast feed. I also got the opportunity to listen live last week, which was great. I just had a few things I wanted to chime in on. Regarding your episode on blind culture, I never really thought about it until your thought-provoking conversation with Amanda and Bonnie. It helped me come to the conclusion that yes, I believe there is a blind culture. There are so many different cultures, and you could apply that word, at least loosely, to any group brought together by some sort of common ground. As somebody who didn't have the fortune to grow up around other blind people, it felt like I'd finally found my people, 
when I first attended a workshop with other blind children in another city. From the first competition about whose screen reader spoke faster, I felt like I belonged. Not that I didn't belong to groups of sighted people, I just felt understood in a way I hadn't up to that point. I still love that I can go for a pint with my friends and complain about a site not being accessible or talk about some improvements to our local transit system and know that they'll get it. And of course, each person in my group of blind friends belongs to other cultures and so on. I suppose this is a long-winded way of saying I believe there is a blind culture and I'm proud to be a part of it. Regarding dating... Both experiences I've had were a result of meeting the person in question and later deciding to date them. I tried online dating very briefly, but was discouraged by how many of the sites relied on pictures as the primary form of finding people. I did find one called OKCupid, but never got any responses, despite answering many of the questions and constructing what I thought was a great bio. I definitely think that lack of education and assumptions about blindness create a barrier to dating, and that can also be discouraging, but I suppose it can act as a way to weed out people who aren't willing to open their minds and learn more about blindness. I'm not sure how I personally feel about disclosing on dating sites. I've tried it both ways with equally quiet responses. I do have a friend who didn't disclose but posted pictures with her and her guide dog. She found somebody and is married now. I love happy endings. Thank you so much, Jesse, for writing in. Here's Matt Murdoch, who says, Hello, Jonathan, I came across your podcast completely by accident whilst wandering around my podcatcher. I must say, it's nice to see a podcast about blindness issues that gets into the weeds on some issues. I have retinitis pigmentosa, and I'm now 55, Originally, I had, quote, normal, unquote, levels of vision in my youth, and over the decades, I have lost all functional vision and have light perception only. I was lucky in that my vision changed over many years, and so I was able to bolt on new skills as I transitioned to blindness. I have lived as a sighted person and a blind person, and have experienced life in both camps. In terms of the blind culture debate, I think I have come to a position where I think there is a soft culture, where we have common experiences that persons with vision do not experience, and amongst each other, as blind persons, do not need to be explained to each other. We all have a common experience of otherness, the expectations of sighted persons in terms of judgment about blindness, and this has a tangible effect on our lives. This is shown even at the most basic level. For example, when a sighted person knocks their glass of water over, it's an accident and forgotten about instantly. When a blind person knocks over a glass of water, it becomes a judgment of competence, where it is remembered with potential anxiety from sighted people that might need risk management strategies to prevent it happening again in the future, despite it being a normal thing that happens to everyone. I am fully aware of the differences of expectation because I know how I was treated as a sighted person and how sighted persons now treat me as a blind person. To be clear, I am fully independent across all my life skills and use long cane as my travel preference because I like to know what is in my environment and I feel that it contributes to mental mapping approaches. 
Like others, I have had a regular comment from sighted persons who say, I don't look blind, and they are amazed at what I can do. I have laughed with my sighted friends when they have struggled in dark environments, and I led them to safety and said to them that it is quite sad how dependent sighted people are on photons. I joke that you can't do anything without having light to help you. Of course, I am met with the handy piss-off that friends will lovingly say. The fundamental issue is personal power and who believes they have adult authority over our own decisions, including risk decisions, and who owns them. I observe a key behaviour from sighted people who, because of their own judgment and belief systems around blindness, feel that they are best placed to make decisions in terms of what they feel is in the best interest of a person, but is in fact a disempowering process that leads to soft control and forms of limiting power over a blind person. Often this can be through a protective love of a person, and not meant harmfully, but the outcome is the same. This brings me to the thought that, in addition to the principle of rights, we also must accept responsibility for ourselves. As adults, we are going to face pain and challenges. The direction of our lives will be determined by what we do in meeting these challenges. My own life would have been very different had I chosen to accept limitations to my life opportunities, whatever these would have been. I could have decided that it would be easier to accept my life on benefits, which are readily available, but would have changed my whole life path, including most likely never having met my wife. I suppose my message is for all of us to take advantage of opportunities to build your independence skills, because through this, We can build emotional and psychological resilience, and from this, foundations of true personal freedom in how we live. Step-by-step foundations are built, and consequently, opportunities present themselves, and suddenly, your life can take that unexpected turn. I completely agree with that, Matt. Thank you so much for writing in. There is an article in one of the NFB publications I read a long time ago, where Kenneth Jernigan talks about this exact same scenario, that he was in a restaurant and he knocked over a glass of water and it turned into a major drama because he happened to be a blind person who knocked over a glass of water when it happens to the best of us, doesn't it? But it's almost like we're on trial all the time and if a regular routine accident that happens happens to a blind person, suddenly it becomes a major drama. Hello. Do you love the Echo? Well, good news! We've got a show for you, The Echo Show. To tell you more, here's Robin. Thanks, Sean. Let's have a flavour of what's in store. Yes, I'm ready. What? Was that a joke? I always love the escape room ones. Let's go with that. Okay, good. Good choice. Ominous. You are on the street. You have zero gold coins. This is one of my favourite skills. Just look at what you had there. Hello, my name's Pete and this is my pub quiz. Next up, history. This is a royal question. Gotta love the royals in chat. We're gonna we're gonna demo them and we're gonna rate them with our thumbs, apparently. So that's good. I can't wait. And if you still want to listen after hearing that, then please stay tuned. The Echo. Show. We cut way over to Canada to hear from a very happy Steve Catway who says, Hi, Jonathan. I think I told you 
I ordered an Amazon Fire TV stick on March the 3rd. It finally arrived today. Now, just because we're backlogged, let me say that that today was March the 27th, his time, I believe. And I have to say that I am completely blown away by everything about it. It's the third generation model. It's every bit as fast and responsive as my Apple TV, which I know wasn't your experience based on Mosin at Large episode 90. The remote control's usability and accessibility is beyond belief, as is voice view. I installed the Apple TV app and watched Season 2, Episode 6 of For All Mankind immediately. I installed TuneIn and was listening to Mushroom FM and Mushroom Escape in seconds. The remote control controls the power and volume on my 29-year-old Yamaha audio receiver, turning it and our Samsung TV on and off simultaneously. All for $69.95 Canadian. What's not to love? Now I just have to convince Nancy to buy a TU-8000. That's going to be a harder sell. Good luck, Steve. Tell her marriages are about give and take. Why doesn't anybody have as catchy a phrase as happy wife, happy life? Uh, Happy husband. I mean, what rhymes with husband? I don't know. We need we need an alternative to or, or an equivalent to happy wife, happy life. That's what we need. Hi, Jonathan. It's Tim Cummings, and I just wanted to let your listeners know that Zoom has two new recorders that it seems they've just come out with, both that have the 32-bit recording, similar to the Zoom F6 that Gary O'Donoghue reviewed a couple months ago. One is the Zoom F2, and the other one is the Zoom F2BT for Bluetooth. And apparently these are both small recorders. I think the Zoom F2 is about $150 and the Zoom F2 with Bluetooth is about $200. They record in 32-bit. They come with a lavalier microphone. They have a 3.5 millimeter microphone jack and there are there's no input level on the recorders themselves. No menus. Obviously, since it's 32-bit, the feeling is that you can record with either of these recorders and not clip, so you don't have to worry about any kind of an input level. So just something that some of your listeners might want to check out if they want to get a hold of a 32-bit recorder that isn't as feature-packed as the Zoom F6, but is a lot cheaper. We have an email from Anisio Korea who says, Hello, Jonathan. I hope you and Bonnie are well. I continue to be one of your biggest fans. I learned so much tuning into your podcasts. Well, thank you so much. I have two questions. One, I use my Bluetooth hearing aids often to interact with my iPhone, along with my Braille with an uppercase B display. However, while the sound coming in through my hearing aids is excellent, I've been told that the audio I generate is terrible. My question is, can I select to use my hearing aids to listen to incoming transmission while using the iPhone mic and or an external mic to broadcast my voice? And if so, how do I go about doing this? That is really interesting, Anisio. So are you saying that your hearing aids also act as Bluetooth microphones for the iPhone? I'd be interested to know what hearing aids you have. Mine certainly don't. So mine are just Bluetooth receivers. And when I'm using the phone, if I've got no fancy schmancy gadgets connected, I am just using the built-in mic of the iPhone, 
which is quite, or mics rather, plural of the iPhone, which is quite reasonable. So without knowing a bit more about what hearing aids you're using and whether they're acting as a microphone, I really can't comment on this. That's interesting. There may be a setting in the app for your aids, assuming your aids do have apps, that make them only work as hearing aids. But that's interesting. Perhaps somebody with the same hearing aids as you can comment if we can find out what those are. Two, are there microphones that plug in directly to the iPhone's lightning port? Any suggestions? Yes, the Shure MV88 is the best one that I know of. That's Mike Victor 88. And of course, it's hard to go wrong with Shure microphones, right? There is also a series made by Zoom, as in Zoom, the audio people. But I've had bad luck with those. And it's acknowledged that they seem to pick up a lot of radio interference from the Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and cellular radios. And they actually recommend that you turn airplane mode on, which is not always very practical. I remember taking that mic to broadcast live on Mushroom FM from a parade that we were having in Wellington in 2017. And I thought, oh, this is going to be epic, epic. But the interference from the radios was so bad that I had to resort to using the built-in mic because it just sounded terrible with all the crackle and pop. So the MV88 is good. Also, don't overlook the fact that you can get the little camera adapter kit from Apple, which will then open up any USB microphone. Essentially, it goes into the lightning port And then you have a USB port at the other end. And there are plenty of good microphones in that space as well. If you just want a good directional mono mic, you could get at a very cheap price the Samson Q2U. Or now they have the Q9U. So there are various options out there like that. And others may have some suggestions for lightning products that plug right into the iPhone. So good luck, and I'm really intrigued to find out which hearing aid it is that's actually affecting the audio that is coming out of the iPhone for people to hear rather than just what you are hearing. Be the first to know what's coming in the next episode of Mosin at Large. Opt in to the Mosin media list and receive a brief email on what's coming so you can get your contribution in ahead of the show. You can stop receiving emails anytime. To join, send a blank email to media-subscribe Subscribe at mosen.org. That's media-subscribe at mosen.org. Stay in the know with Mosen at Large. Hello, Jonathan. It's Thomas Solich in Ohio here again. And I have just been continuing to heartily enjoy your uh, everything that you're putting out. And I think that uh, <laughs> your content is of higher quality than ever before. So it just shows that uh, obviously the um, the busy life and your uh, the uh, CEO position at um, Workbridge is only uh, helping your uh, recreational uh, care for the blind community at large and uh, technology and other aspects to be even more colorful uh, and helpful. So we thank you for that uh, again and again, and uh, Mike. Thought and question today simply pertains to a couple of months ago when you were announcing your new Dell. And I believe you purchased a Dell XPS. And I've used Dell for a couple of decades almost. And the items that you identified totally resounded with me because um, 
personally, I find that Dell has the best warranty. It has um, the best use for rigorous business tasks. Uh, I've always found the audio a little underwhelming because the uh, latitudes that I've used largely are uh, best for the business world, and so the audio is um, compromised. They just don't put that much effort into the audio or speakers. But the other thing I wanted to ask you is now that you've had your Dell for a couple of months, have you found any easier ways or tips to manage some of the applications independently, like the Waves Max Audio, as well as some of the Dell Optimizer and AI um, apps that Dell is using to help things to be really fast and um, and quick and usable? Uh, I have not. Uh, a lot of those apps simply are so graphical that uh, it just keeps saying blank, blank, blank. And uh, I'm about to uh, replace my uh, latest Dell Latitude. I'd like to get another Dell, so I just wanted to check in with the master to see if you had any uh, tips, tricks, further thoughts for how you uh, have been using your new Dell and the solutions and applications thereof, and if you feel that, um, that you've found ways to overcome that because I would love to stick with the Dell family, and I think I will either way, but I just wanted to hear from you before I make this purchase. Jonathan, thank you. Keep up the fantastic work. Well, thank you for your encouragement, Thomas. I really appreciate that. I haven't really found any magic tricks other than to say that when that little dialogue pops up, when you plug in something into that jack and it asks you, what are you plugging in? And you can actually tell it not to ask you again. And because I never use anything other than a headphone type device in that jack, I had Iris help to go in and check that box. So now when I plug in my little hearing aid cable into the headphone jack, it just switches automatically without bugging me. So that's a little bit of progress. I've also found the Dell support assistant, which sometimes pops up at random and says, oi, did you want to run the support assistant and make sure that it's all optimized? I found that fairly okay. There are other tools that are not, and I haven't found any way around that. I did read with considerable interest that there's a blind person in the United States who apparently has sued Dell under the ADA regarding their website. And so that could be a huge favor to us all because if they find in favor of that suit or somebody chooses to investigate and maybe wants to reach out to the blind community, maybe they will get the accessibility bug. Sometimes this happens. I mean, can you remember some years ago how difficult it was? How I think there were marches, weren't there, at Amazon's headquarters in Washington State about the horrific, the inaccessibility of Kindle. And now they've just totally got the accessibility religion. So if that could happen to Dell, if a little bit of a lawsuit nudges them in the right direction then that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? So I'll be watching that with a lot of interest. And it would be great if we could make a connection somewhere with somebody at Dell and have a good dialogue with people who know what they're doing about what they might do to make their apps a bit more accessible. They are not on their own here. Some of these built-in packages on a number of these computers could do with a lot of accessibility work. Interesting that you say the audio on the latitudes isn't that good. I see this quite a bit with business-related laptops. I had a Toshiba when I moved back from the Mac world to Windows, and I got this Toshiba Portage Z630C, and it was a fantastic computer. It flew, it had built-in 4G, we were rocking it, 
But, oh my goodness, the speaker in that thing was just absolutely pitiful. A transistor radio would have sounded better than that. So I don't know what makes them think that business users don't need good audio on their machines. And maybe manufacturers will be rethinking that in an era of audio and video conferencing. And of course, if you're doing agriculture, Dell computers are ideal because then you'd be the farmer in the Dell, wouldn't you? (laughs) Now, Matthew Horspill is writing in and he says, Hi, Jonathan, I recently bought a Dell XPS 13. I recall you recently bought the XPS 15 and observed that the home and end keys are mapped to FN F11 and FN F12 rather than the typical FN left arrow and right arrow. This was the case for me too when I first bought the laptop, and I found it very disconcerting. However, I persevered and mostly got used to it. However, earlier this evening, muscle memory prevailed, and I accidentally pressed Control-FN right arrow to go to the bottom of a document, instead of Control-FN-F12. Much to my surprise, however, it worked! Looking back through my Windows update history, shows a Dell firmware update was recently installed. I also recently installed the JAWS April update. I guess either one of those could have added it, but the Dell firmware upgrade seems much more likely. I now need to get used to using FN left arrow and right arrow again, but I'm finding it much more efficient already. Congratulations, Dell, for adding this functionality. For those who have got used to FN F11 and F12, These combinations still work as well. Well, Matthew, you lucky, lucky person, because I have to tell you, when I got your message, I was in the studio and I ran upstairs where my laptop is, turned it on and whacked that FN left and right arrow with glee and nothing happened. So then I checked Windows Update. I was up to date. Then I ran that Dell support assistant, service assistant thing, and I was up to date. Then I went to the Dell website looking for any firmware that might be there somewhere. There wasn't anything. But all I can say is I do hope that this does go to the XPS 15. It is really encouraging that it's happened to you. I like to hope it's also being rolled out to other models in that case, because I too have gotten used to, you know, sort of put up with the F11 and F12 thing because it's such a nice computer otherwise, but that would be very handy. I mean, I still miss the HP that I was using in that regard because it had dedicated home end page up and page down keys, and that's my preference. But if they're going to cramp the keyboard, definitely FN left and right arrow is far preferable when you're typing away than having to reach your hand up to F11 and F12. So I am hoping, hoping it comes to me soon. I have all my fingers crossed, which means if I push some wrong buttons while doing this, you will know why. It's the topic that keeps on giving. Guide dog refusals at Uber and Tiffany Jessen's writing in and says, I wanted to inquire about your Uber experiences. After reporting the refusals to Uber, you mentioned that drivers are taken off the platform, but more than once, you mentioned that it was only temporarily. While, yes, I read that if the results of the company researching a complaint is conclusive, a driver's access to the app may be put on hold while being re-educated. But if the complaint is found in the passenger's side, 
I believe they are barred permanently. Am I incorrect? Is it maybe different from country to country? Yes, Tiffany, my understanding is that it does differ from country to country because of the different Uber franchises that are out there. So in the United States, I think you are right. They have a one strike and you're out policy. In New Zealand and Australia, which operate under the same Uber franchise, it does work differently. So if you make a complaint and Uber investigates and finds in your favor, the driver is taken off the platform if this is the first infraction of a service animal refusal. And then they are put on a course and they have to certify that they have been on that course. When they've completed the course, they are allowed back on the platform. If there is a second infraction, then the driver is barred from the platform permanently. That is it. Sayonara. Adios. Auf Wiedersehen. Toodle pip. Mosin at Large Podcast. Maybe the check will be in the mail once you hear this advice from Laurel Jean Walden. Hi, Jonathan. Here is my two cents worth regarding the question submitted to Mosin at Large about printing checks. I have used each of these options successfully. First, most large banks here in the States have an online banking option which allows the user to send printed checks directly through the bank. It is usually part of the online bill payment system. The account holder simply completes a form including payee info, payee mailing address, etc., check amount and any information such as an account number to be printed on the memo line of the check. This payment can be scheduled just like any other online bill payment. I have sent checks this way using Wells Fargo, and I know that Bank of America also offers this option. Sometimes there is a small fee depending on the type of bank account used. Second, the banking software for Windows, Money Talks, is still up to date and available through the American Printing House for the Blind. It works with JAWS and NVDA and also includes a self-voicing option if preferred. The software can be configured to work with most styles of checks. Sighted assistance might be required when first configuring the printing options, but once these options are set, they should not need to be changed unless a different style of check is used. I purchased this a few years ago when I wrote a lot of checks and loved it. Finally, Harland Clark still makes the site check. Please don't shoot the messenger, Jonathan. (laughs) I didn't name it. These checks are business-sized with embossed, bold lines. They can still be ordered through the bank, although bankers often need to be educated about them. These specialized checks are more expensive than standard checks. I still keep these checks on hand in the event that I need to handwrite one. If using the handwritten option, one still needs to keep current notes regarding all checks that are written until they clear the bank to prevent an overdraft of the account. When I handwrite a check, I print the date, payee, amount, and memo info, then sign my name in cursive. Over the years, i found that printing is the more legible option when writing by hand. I use IRA and occasionally my old opticon, to make sure that the check is legible before handing it over. IRA agents are very helpful in that they read the check back to me verbatim and never say things like, You write like a first grader, as sighted people have said to me in the past. The only question that needs to be answered affirmatively is, 
Is this check legible? Hope this is helpful, and thanks again for all you do. And while we're talking about signing things, Carol Ashland wrote in about signatures, and she said, My solution to the signature issue is that I had a stamp made. I use it on most papers. I can write a decent signature in situations where it is required, such as election ballot envelopes. I had the stamp made because my hands shake and are unreliable. I know that some people will tend to think that I use a stamp because I can't write my name legibly, but that's their problem. As to the date, I don't think I can write the numbers legibly. Thanks, Carol. Yeah, I guess that's a solution. You'd have to be careful, wouldn't you, that the stamp doesn't get into the wrong hands, because otherwise you could be authorizing your name to all sorts of things. I think many executives have digital signatures these days. I have a digital signature that's pretty closely guarded, and my executive assistant has that and asks for permission to apply it and things just because we have so much stuff that needs to be signed and needs to get done. So there are those options as well. Uh, Security of those things would be absolutely critical, though. And I wonder whether anybody's done any investigation about the legalities around that. Like if you've got a document that's had your stamp on, does that actually qualify legally as a signature? I don't know the answer. Just sort of musing about the question. It is time once again for another super-duper Bonnie Bulletin. Hi, guys. Welcome. Hi. What do you mean, guys? It's just me you're talking oh, to. Oh, well, the people out there. Oh, the are, there, are there people out there? Yeah. You're an optimist. Yeah. yeah. You're an optimist. Always. We went to a really cool concert on Friday night. We did. It was absolutely fantastic. Solo Mio. Solo Mio. Great New Zealand group. All three of them are Samoans, two brothers and a cousin. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess you'd call him the leader. He's kind of trained uh, operatically. He's he's a brilliant operatic team. Yes, very good. And he's been performing in Italy and places like that. Paris. Yeah, Paris. Uh, Anyway, it's just fantastic. And then we got home. I have to say, one of the things that's always fascinated me, partly because I'm a radio geek and partly, I think, because I've actually been in a position, my most memorable one was when the first Gulf War broke out and I was actually on the air. Actually, I was on ACB radio when the second Gulf War Mm -hmm. started as well. Mm -hmm. I'm a jinx. But anyway, where I was going is I, I am always fascinated by the way that news is broken in the broadcast media. It's always fascinated me. And so it's also interesting to look at the different news apps and which push things first. And consistently, Sky News is just so quick. So Sky News pushed at 11.04 p.m. on Friday, our time, that Prince Philip had died. NBC News was right there with them just a few seconds after because when I heard it come through I thought did I hear that right and then just as I was going to check the notification center NBC pushed it it took the BBC another four minutes to push it and so I said to you we'll turn on the radio by the time we switched the BBC on they hadn't even mentioned it yet so no. we were actually able to, able to hear the the actual announcement yeah. Yeah, from the BBC yes There's an amazing guy on Twitter called David Lloyd who's been involved in radio in the UK for a long time. And he is a radio history nerd, and he tweets these wonderful radio history things every single day. But I knew he would do this, and sure enough, he came up with the goods. You can actually, if you follow David Lloyd Radio on Twitter, uh, he has put together a compilation of the way 
many radio stations in the UK broke the news of Prince Philip's death. The BBC must have some sort of amazing button. I, I, I'd love to know how this works technically because they all broke into their respective programs across all the BBC networks, even the networks that play you know, pop music for kids and dance music and all of the radio networks nationally across the country instantly started broadcasting this special news program where they stayed for some hours. So I find those things fascinating. I'm sure you could find out if you ask someone. I will find out. <laughs> I, I, I shall make it my mission to find out. But <laughs> this story has had a, a sort of an impact here because we are members of the Commonwealth still. And so uh, there will be mourning here in New Zealand. Later today, as we put this together, there's a 41-gun salute. In Wellington. Happening yeah. here, yeah, in Wellington, yeah. in the capital. Yeah, weather permitting. What would weather have to do with whether they can fire 41? Well, they're all outside. So, oh, well, yeah, can't they put, like, a raincoat on? No, I don't know. I, you can imagine what Prince Philip would have said about that. Yeah, I know what Prince Why Philip would have said. Why Yeah. But they did say that we might be able to hear it. All over Wellington because they're pretty big guns. They're not just It would make rifles. an amazing binaural yeah. recording if we yeah. went somewhere we, we could yeah. really hear it's it. It's in a natural amphitheater, I think they said. The battery, wherever the battery is. Really? So, I don't know. That may be up on the waterfront somewhere. It's an amazing story in the sense that, uh, gosh, only two months more he would have got a telegram from his own yeah, wife, wouldn't he? it's really sad that he didn't make it to his 100th Get a telegram birthday. from the Queen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, but that that was a, a an incredible partnership. And when you think of a guy in the 1950s, pretty macho Navy man, who at his wife's coronation ceremony had to kneel down in yeah. public before her to an audience of many, many millions, and then essentially always remain two steps behind, behind her, her. Yeah. but yet was always beside her. I'm no monarchist, but... You know, you have to separate that and say that's he. He did a lot to modernize the monarchy, didn't he? He did. He yeah. did. You know, he. They weren't. You know, she was sort of the. Real, I wouldn't. Her father was. You know, a reluctant king. He was not supposed to be king. No, I don't believe that he even wanted to be king. You oh, know, no, he, he didn't. He had a nice family that was. You know, living a country life and with their horses and dogs and things, and then you had the war. Well, before you had the war, you had Edward who decided to abdicate, and then you had a war, and, you know, the, some would say that, that probably shortened George's life, King George's life. Then you had a young princess who uh, became queen, you mm. know, who had two young children herself and was, you know, married a few years. You had Philip, Prince Philip, who was, uh, as you said, in the Navy, looking forward to a long Navy career. Yeah, they were in Malta. Give it up. Living a pretty regular yeah, life. pretty normal life. And she was able to go out shopping. She was able to sort of go and get her hair done, all those things with their two children. Uh, she was a, she was playing the role of a Navy wife. Of a Navy wife. Yeah. yeah, and she really enjoyed that, and they were happy. And there was even some suggestion that if he'd hung around long enough, if George, say, reigned for another 20, 30 years, which wasn't inconceivable, that he might have eventually commanded the British Navy. Yeah. You know, but yeah. he gave all of that up. And nobody was really sure what role he would play. Because it had never really been done before. I mean, it, it, yeah, well, yeah, I suppose there are some big differences between Victoria and Albert mm -hmm. and Elizabeth and Philip in the sense that um, I think he described it as, as Victoria as more of an executive monarch, Yeah. whereas Elizabeth was not. And she'd been in love with him since she was 13. 
Yeah, some people dispute that. They certainly met when she was 13. Yeah. I think she liked him, whether she was actually – she probably thought he was very handsome in his Navy uniform. Yes, and- yes. And to think that happened in 1939 – so all those decades, you know, a, a romance that sort of started budding in the 30s, and here we are in the 2020s. It is a remarkable thing. And, uh, yeah, he did a lot to modernize the monarchy. Actually, I think that's one area where the crown is pretty accurate, That the mm-hmm. Netflix series. Uh, he was the one who fought for the coronation to be televised. He f- was very fearful that the British monarchy should not get isolated from the people uh, in the same way that uh, his monarchy became. You know, and yeah, they I was were just going to say that they were deposed, and I think that was probably a huge influence. Yeah. On it. And his mother, you know, his mother was quite the progressive person in, when she went back to Greece after she was let out of the hospital, did a lot in World War II uh, in Greece, hiding Jews from the Nazis and, you know, setting up a charity and hospital and uh, an order of nuns. Yes. Yeah. And then she eventually moved into Buckingham Palace mm-hmm. and she, she died there. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's a really amazing story. And he was actually rescued by the British Navy mm-hmm. as a baby in a cardboard box, essentially. Yes. Yeah. You know, shipped out of there. Mm-hmm. And I know that he got himself into some hot water some sometimes with the comments that he would make. Oh, well, everyone um, does. Well, so. well, yes. Not me. Not no. Me. <laughs> <laughs> but they said, you know, he went from radio to television to digital. You know, he, he saw the monarchy evolve through all these all these things. Yeah. What's interesting is how he just had a natural love of learning. He didn't receive a lot of formal education. Mm-mm. And I really enjoy, I've known people like this in my own life, and I really enjoy talking to people like that because some of the people that you meet who've got fancy university degrees, they're not, you know, they're book smart. They're not very smart yeah. people. But no, uh, apparently he had his own library of over 11,000 titles that were well thumbed through. He could talk on any subject if he went to give a an opening of something or a speech somewhere. He made a point of being you know, really informed. And um, he sounds like a very intelligent, interesting yeah, man. Yeah, and he loved yeah. horses. So, you know, horses where he was a, a major player on the international equestrian circuit with polo and yeah. that. So he, um, you know, rode and um, he uh, was quite uh, – And one thing that he was really, you know, climate change is sort of the hot topic these days, but Prince Philip was on it before anyone else was. And and population explosions. Population explosions and and animal, well, animal conservation. So he was, that was one of his passions that he, you know, really believed in saving the planet. And uh, long before it became, you know, trendy to be on the on the the climate change train, so you know he was he was on it. He knew it. He talked to scientists about it. As you said, he did his research and uh, passed that down to his son, Prince Charles, who's also a big conservationist. Yeah, and he could be very gruff, pretty brisk and aloof and things. But you know, he also has done a lot for young people with the Duke of Edinburgh's trust. And it's mm-hmm. interesting to hear the speculation that eventually 
uh, Edward is going to become the Duke of Edinburgh. Yeah, I like Prince Edward a lot. I think that he's he's sort of a royal that you don't hear about very often, but he seems like a really nice guy. Theater was is his passion, so I think on on some levels he probably has inherited a lot of his father's philanthropy. Yeah, I yeah. was listening to an interview on BBC Radio Four with a guy who actually did the program that the Duke of Edinburgh Trust has when he was in prison, and he was sent to prison at the age of 18. Uh, so he may not have stayed in uh, one of Her Majesty's palaces, but he was staying at Her Majesty's pleasure. <laughs> and uh, then he went on one of these programs, and it turned his life around. He also was patron, I guess because of his association with the deaf community through his mother, he was patron of the Royal National Institute of mm-hmm. Deaf People in the UK, and he had quite a lot of interest in disability and disabled people doing sports. Yes. He was really big on this idea that disabled people needed opportunities for recreation. Uh, so he was a great public speaker. Some of his gaffes were just, um, you know, really unfortunate. And, yeah. and I guess, you know, if, you, if you're trying to be charitable, as one should be when someone's just died, you could say, well, he was a product of a different age or something. Yeah. Um, but the one that really <laughs> – the one that just left me gobsmacked <laughs> that I'd forgotten about was apparently there was a woman. It would be great if the woman was listening to Mosin yeah, at large. Yeah, knew actually. who she was. The woman, I, who I believe was in Exeter in the UK and met Prince Philip on a royal walkabout and Prince Philip saw the guide dog. And uh, God knows whether this was before or after Diana. I guess that's an interesting question. And Prince Philip said, oh, did you know that they have eating dogs for the anorexic now? <laughs> Yeah, so it's a, it's the end of an era. And, it is the end of an era. It's um, someone that you kind of wish you had met. To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a U.S. number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin at-